Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sambuddhasa This evening, I'm going to give a talk on freedom uh, through the practice of skillful efforts. Before I give a talk, you might be wondering, where are others? <laughs> Am I abandoned? <laughs> Actually, this is also my day off. <laughs> but yesterday, I decided to give my day of Dharma talk and donated it to Joseph to give a Q&A. <laughs> so then the teachers say, are you sure you want to give a, a Dhamma talk on your day off? I say, no problem. Monks, we have already renounced a lot. <laughs> 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 I cannot renounce my day, my day off. <laughs> so here I am. That's why you don't say anybody. So anyway, we go for the Dhamma talk. And this is my last Dhamma talk, in case you're not. Yeah. So I'll mumble a few words, you know. <laughs> this is my last Dhamma talk. Yeah, so I don't know whether that's good news or bad news. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'll go ahead. I'll cover a few major points here. One is uh, introducing the topic, uh, what's, what to define effort, and according to the scriptures, and then uh, also tell you that this is actually a critical response of the Buddha himself, of what, uh, what was going uh, in, at that time in India, in the 6th century BC, what was going on there. So he taught the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, and right effort is part of the Noble Eightfold Path. So it was a critical, a critical response of what was going on. He was not just dreaming things and teaching, you know. He practiced it, and it was. A, you are going to see that it's a critical response. So I'll talk about the fourfold effort, and then uh, and how to arouse the effort, and how to balance it, and then conclude. So these are the territory. This is the area we are going to cover. Uh, we're going to cover that area. So for me, I've had so many people talking about meditation and awakening and enlightenment and even I hear people who say oh this is effortless effort you know this is an effortless path you don't have to apply effort but for me from my experience really there's very little you can achieve on nothing you can achieve without effort very little on nothing you need some effort it's very very important Even in life, in general, to achieve success, you need some effort, and or maybe good luck also, as people think. For me, I recognized the need for effort when I was uh, still in Africa, and I went to my grandmother, very far away in a village there, and I was coming from a town, city, 
where we prepare tea, we, we had the gas cooker, and uh, we had uh, charcoal, sometimes firewood, but it was available. We had water from the faucets. We just opened water and they prepared tea. But when I went for a holiday to visit my grandmother, very quickly I learned how to prepare a cup of tea required effort. So we need to go somewhere to fetch water, which took almost 20 minutes or so on a hill and carry it. Then we needed to, f to get fire from our neighbor <laughs> if the matchbox ran out, so we need to get fire from a neighbor. Then we have to start fire. And then, so collecting fire and getting water and then start boiling. Then good luck if the firewood's really dry. Sometimes it's wet, you know, so you have to keep on blowing until it, catch fi it catches fire. So then after some 30 minutes, you'll have a cup of tea ready. But when I came to USA, this was my first time to see microwave <laughs> and I was so surprised uh, in 99 the prepare a cup of tea took almost one minute actually one minute or less and I said oh wow here you require less effort to prepare a cup of tea or coffee then I tried to think about meditation uh, are we going to meditate like preparing a cup of tea in Africa or are we going to meditate like in America where you prepare a cup of tea within one, min one minute? So I found out from my experience as a, a yogi meditating many times and I found out there was a tendency to microwave my practice. <laughs> <laughs> I think you are familiar with that. The teacher gives instruction, you get inspired with that. Dharma talk or Q&A and uh, uh, interview and they say, yes, I got it. And then you sit down and say, yes, within five minutes I'll get the first jhana, I'll get the second jhana. I'll even get enlightened, by the way. So there's a tendency to microwave our practice. And actually one thing with, yeah, one, another thing that surprised me is when I was on staff here, we had to, uh, like, to wash our clothes and put there in the washing machine. At home, we didn't have a washing mas machine, you know. We used to wash like this. So when I came here, you just put this, your clothes and then you, within some 30 minutes ready and then you put it in a dryer. So really, within one hour, you get your clothes ready. In Africa, with my grandmother, it takes almost the entire day. Because you have to wash them like this, and then you depend on the sun, you know. <laughs> so sometimes it could take maybe another three hours, four hours, because you put them out in the sun. But here you had a dryer. So I found out life was a little bit easier here, you know. <laughs> but in the meditation, it wasn't working that way, you know. I wasn't putting my practice in a laundry, you know. <laughs> in a dryer, you know, and get ready, everything get ready, you know. So it required really a process, you know. So in other words, there's no cutting out corners. That's a story. That's what I'm trying to say. There's no cutting out corners. We have to do the practice. That's very, very important to remember. And part of the practice is 
uh, really right efforts. So here, really, we get so many terms in Pali language. Uh, one is vidya, and uh, that's what. Uh, and also, sometimes they use uh, wayama, like sama wayama. That's uh, right effort at, as it is given in the noble eightfold path. And right effort appears in many places, uh, like uh, thirty-seven uh, uh, factor. Uh, what to call? Uh, Wings of awakening, so it appears more than even mindfulness. It appears many, many times in this set of dhammas than even mindfulness. But we don't, we don't talk so much about it actually. Everybody is talking about mindfulness, mindfulness, awareness of this, awareness of awareness. So, but not so many of us would really talk about uh, effort, which is, and it's very, very important. It's, it's very, very important. So then, the Buddha's uh, teaching of the Noble Eightfold Path, it was a critical response of what was going on in India. Those days in India, there used to be two, uh, many views, but I can offer you two of them. One of them uh, said that don't apply effort at all. No effort. And then another view was apply excess effort excess effort. And to give you a flavor of these views, I'd like to read directly from the scriptures, because maybe we might have some descendants of these schools, you know. <laughs> Just listen carefully, so you might be one who may be reborn from this kind of view. We don't, we don't know. So I'm just offering this for you. Before, during the time of the Buddha, he had contemplaries, uh, six contemporaries, and one of them was Makkali, Makkali Gosala. I'm going to read right from the scriptures. This one, he advocated that there's no need for effort, nothing. <laughs> and you're going to see his argument, you know. So, okay, Makkali Gosala said, Your Majesty, there is no cause or condition for the defilement of beings. They are defiled without cause or condition. There is no cause or condition for the purification of beings. They are purified, purified without cause or condition. There is no self-power or other power. There is no power in humans, no strength, no force, no vigor, no exertion. Are we together on this? <laughs> Effortless effort. No effort at all. All, right? all beings, all living beings, all creatures, all that lives is without control. In other words, everything is chaotic. <laughs> without power or strength. They experience the fixed cause of pressure and pain through the six kinds of rebirth. There are fifth there are one million four hundred thousand principal sorts of rebirth of birth and six hundred others and again six hundred. There are five hundred kinds of karma of five kinds and three kinds and half karma, 
62 paths, 62 intermediary eons, 6 classes of humankind, 8 stages of human progress, 4,900 4, occupations, 4,900 wanderers, 4,900 abodes of Nagas, on and on and on. Hmm? I can't finish this, there's a lot here. <laughs> seven great and seven abbesses, uh, abbesses, and then seven great and even small dreams. Seven great and seven small dreams. Eight million four hundred thousand eons during which fools and wise run on and, and suck around till they make an end to suffering. When I read this, I have questions. How did this person know about all these numbers? <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing. And yet from this ground, this person said, no, there's no need to make effort. Why? How can you make an effort? Because Since you have to go through all that. Why bother? There's even a belief of, of, of going through what you call 84,000 84, uh, uh, species. Uh, so you keep, even if you make an effort, it doesn't really count because you have to go through all this. So this is what we call determinism, deterministic ideas or fatalism. Hmm? So really, uh, look at in your practice whether you think that you get through this meditation without effort. Open awareness. No effort. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> when we talk open awareness, there must be what we call balanced effort. Continued effort. It doesn't mean there's no effort. I don't know how they put that word open. <laughs> I think we like open things, you know? <laughs> open mind, open awareness. I think that's where the catch is. We think that we are not going to apply any effort at all. We just have to see it. Like, and then like, oh, yeah. Things are going on very well. Food is well prepared and <laughs> good cushions, good dhamma talk. I hope so. <laughs> Just open awareness. No problem. Things will happen. That's one, that's one school. We put it on one side. Yet there comes another school that was on, on the other end of the spectrum. The, the other end of the spectrum is apply a lot of effort. <laughs> and I did that one, actually. One time, I remember I was breathing. I was practicing in Burma. Uh, in uh, 2003, uh, four, and uh, actually 2004. So there is this kind of uh, schedule where you have to report to the teacher. Hmm? You have to the, report to the teacher uh, every the other day. I did it in I did this in Burma, and also I did it in California, where I was training as a monk in San Jose. But let's start with, I think, uh, when I was in San Jose for over a year. The teacher was very demanding. He was the assistant to Upandita, this fierce monk who passed away, the teachers of Joseph and all that. So every time I would go and report, 
I thought that I had all these insights. I would report to him. And every day, every time he would say, try hard. Then I go again, try hard. One month, try hard. I said, what is he meaning? <laughs> so what I did is trying to breathe longer. Hmm? I was watching Rise and Fall of Abdomen. So I would extend my rising of the abdomen to see what I'm going to report. It was very painful afterwards. Because there you had to report what is happening when you observe the rising of abdomen. You have to report thoroughly. <laughs> and also what happens when the abdomen falls. You have to report thoroughly <laughs> without skipping. I'm telling you, I say, okay, now I'm going, I've sat for two hours and I'm really going to extend my breath to really find out more insights. I'm telling you, it was very tiring. And uh, later on, I gave up, actually, <laughs> because uh, it was not working. So let's look at somebody <laughs> who apply a lot of efforts. And then we, go to, we, come to, we come to the Buddha then. He's the Buddha's practice. Before he attained enlightenment, he was called a Bodhisattva or Bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is Sanskrit, and Pali is Bodhisattva. So before he attained enlightenment, these are the practices he did. I'm just going to read one to give you some idea of excessive effort. I thought, suppose I practice breathingless meditation. Have you done this practice? It's called breathingless breathing meditation. No breathing at all, in other words. Here's a new kind of meditation for you. <laughs> It's called breathing less meditation, breathing less meditation, as opposed to breathing meditation. So I stopped the in-breath and out-breath through my mouth and nose. While I did so, there was a loud sound of winds coming out from my ear robes. My, I, I, sorry, my ear holes. I mean ear holes. Sorry about that. Just as there is a loud sound, when a smithy's bellows are brown, so too, while I stopped the in-breath and out-breath through my nose and ears, there was a loud sound of winds coming out from my ear holes. But although tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting Unremitting mindfulness was established. My body was um, restless, in other words, and, and calm because I was exhausted by painful striving. But such painful feeling that arose in, in me did not invade my mind and remain. So you can see the sutta keep on going on and on practices. Even they had practices whereby you stand on your leg. You stand on your leg for years. <laughs> the idea is that you, when you stand on your leg, you actually you, uh, you apply physical effort, you burn off your past karmas. Because karma there, it was physical. They meant it uh, to be physical. So then that's the way to gain liberation, by overstriving excessive effort. So what the Buddha did, he said, no, no, no. I'm not going to be on one side where there's no effort, and I'm not going to be on one side where there's overstriving, excessive efforts, I'm going to find out the way to freedom by applying 
by applying balanced, right, skillful, wise effort. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. That effort, the Buddha summarized it in four kinds of effort. The four kinds of efforts are uh, the four kinds of efforts is uh, effort to prevent unwholesome. This is mental, actually. According to the Buddha, this effort is actually mental. Effort to prevent unwholesome or unskillful states of mind from arising. That's the first kind of effort. The second effort is effort to overcome unskillful, unskillful states of mind when they have arisen. Then the third kind of effort, effort to maintain, to maintain skillful or wholesome states of mind. The, th the fourth kind of effort is effort to maintain skillful states of mind. So those are the four kinds of efforts. The Buddha called it right effort because it has mindfulness in, in it. It has understanding what's skillful and unskillful. So this is the effort that we need even when we apply what we call choiceless awareness or open awareness to really uh, to, uh, overcome to prevent, to overcome, develop, and maintain. So these are the four things that you, you need to remember uh, in this uh, uh, critical response to the Buddha between what's insufficient efforts, efforts, or no effort, and then excessive efforts. So this is what we call the middle way or the, the middle path. Now the question comes, we know all these four kinds of efforts, but how do we, how do we uh, practice it? How do we bring them from the book to your practice? The way I was trained by many teachers, of course, I found a, a very skillful way of applying this effort, for efforts in a practice itself. So I will share my experience. I don't know whether to be helpful, but I will share the way I practice the four efforts because you need them. So the way I was trained to practice by some of my teachers is to get what you call a primary object. Primary object, home object. For me, that home object is my home. It's like, for instance, rising and fall of abdomen mindfulness of breathing in and out. That's a home object. For the reason is, is that the breath is there, is there all the time. This is the primary stage of the breath, and this is the secondary, um, secondary stage of the breath, where I feel uh, when you're breathing in and out. So for me, being with that object, being with that object reminds me of the effort to develop mindfulness. It's there all the time, right? 
So this is where I start a moment of mindfulness, which condition another moment of mindfulness. So there's a continuity in that. So there's effort to develop wholesome states of mind. So and mindfulness is one of the mind state which is called beautiful state of mind, sobana in Pali. So it's really where I arouse, I mean, I, mean, I develop wholesome states of mind, starting with the primary object. But as I start with the primary object, there's what we call secondary objects. So the secondary objects is, will be th think, thoughts, when thoughts arise, so I become mindful of thinking. When I, mindfulness of, uh, when I practice mindfulness of thinking or hearing, so uh, that's, I actually am doing what we call uh, this uh, effort to prevent. Because as I'm practicing hearing, hearing, when the sound comes, I'm preventing the reaction of hearing, I don't like this sound. Hearing, I like this sound. Hearing, I don't know what about this sound. So I'm preventing unwholesome states of mind from arising at the sixth sense door, right? I told you last time, actually, <laughs> I don't need to repeat this, how I, I started practicing Bhavana Society and then the sound came. And uh, I'm telling you, it started from the time I, I did my retreat and then it ended when I ended my retreat. I, I, I wanted to take it too personal, actually. Can you imagine, you, you, I've been waiting for this retreat for a month and then all of a sudden they start this sound, you know, <laughs> and then I end it, then it ended. I took it a little bit personal. <laughs> so next time I decided to come to FR, actually. <laughs> next time I, I decided to go to FR so that I don't have sounds. When I reached FR, that was <laughs> one month, there was no sound at all, but I'm telling you, my stomach started bloating, you know, and uh, it was so painful for seven days, you know. So it seemed that there's, a, there's always something coming up. <laughs> there's always something coming up that you require, it, it, requires, it requires you to be mindful of whatever's arising, you know. So anyway, for me, uh, really being mindful of the six senses, it really helps me to guard my mind. Mm -hmm. If somebody, you can use it also, actually, six senses. It helps you to prevent these unwholesome states of mind from arising. Let's say you're sitting here and everything's going very well, and uh, maybe they ring a bell at the end. And you have the best seat for the last six weeks of are we, where are we now five weeks you have the you've been really struggling and now this is your best seat and then the bell rings for standing up you hear these sounds i wish he forgot or she forgot to ring the bell <laughs> you start reacting you know i love my seat you know so <laughs> but if i'm just present oh hearing Hearing. Then I'm not going to react to the bell ringing. Eh? It's just sound. It's just sound. Hearing. Hmm? So th that's become the secondary object. And then another effort that I, I apply, uh, which is the effort to overcome, 
is when the hindrance arises. The hindrances when they arise. So on that side, I know that I'm going to apply the effort to overcome the hindrances. Not overcome by just say, oh, go away or apply active measures. Uh, there are active measures to get rid of hindrances. But I, really apply, I still apply mindfulness to really make sure that it's, uh, I'm able to see the, the hindrance arising and passing away and then and the conditions arising, just as I gave a talk last time. So, but I know that that's the effort I need to really uh, see the hindrances subsiding. But of course, subsiding while I'm getting some nuggets of wisdom, you know, uh, knowing its impermanence, its, in, its unsatisfactory nature, its selfless nature. So I get this kind of wisdom. So I need to apply that effort. And then out of that uh, practice, then what, uh, let's say freedom from hindrance brings joy, gladness, it brings happiness and calmness. Then I have to apply the, another, another kind of effort, which is called effort to maintain. So me, I'm a very visual person. So like as a human being, like here, I'm sitting here, I'll say, okay, my home is here. This is my home. And then the sense, because the head has a lot of senses, you know, the ear, the brain is here, the skin, and the touch, and then the smell, the taste. So really, a lot is here, actually. So I say, okay, every time I'm really tuning in the six senses, yes, I'm really preventing uh, attachment to or aversion towards something. So that effort, I'm really reminded of that effort to prevent. And on this side, left or right, it doesn't matter. On this side, there are hindrances. Okay, I know that I will really make my efforts to really overcome it through mindfulness. And on my side, on left side, okay, this like five spiritual faculties, like that's mindfulness, faith, uh, I need to maintain faith and confidence, otherwise doubt is going to uh, keep on coming. So then there's efforts, then there's concentration, there's wisdom. Anything that comes, maybe joy or calmness. So I need to maintain this. Not maintaining that it's going to stay the same, but actually it's also joy. Joy is arising and passing out. And if you are practicing this, uh, what you call jhanas, they are called junk factors that you need to develop and also maintain. So really, this is a, a practice that encompasses all these four efforts by really bringing it to your experience. That hmm? if you're a person so, you know, open awareness, you know, you just everything's open, everything's open. So maybe you are not really tuning in what really the Buddha was talking about. Balanced effort, skillful effort, uh, continue, uh, continuous effort. So this is right there from my uh, meditation objects. It encompasses uh, those three, uh, four kinds of effort. Hmm? When I teach in Uganda, even I draw a cross like this. A cross like this. In the center, that's the home. In the north, that's uh, the six senses. East, then hindrances. West, spiritual faculties. And, and south, I put pain there, you know, <laughs> in case pain comes. So really, it's a very simple structure, really, to 
navigate around, you know. And we should know when to use um, uh, what you call, we should know when to maintain the effort, we should know when to develop it, we should know where to apply uh, the effort to overcome. Because what I see most people, they mistake this, um, they use this um, kind of effort in a wrong way. Let's say they have joy arising, calm is coming, and they feel very calm and peaceful. Then they start to say, what's going on wrong? You remember the, analog the, the simile of a hen? Eh? You remember the, the, I told you that we should meditate like chickens? So people that are feeling peaceful, and this is the, actually this is a product of their, their practice. Eh? They have been sailing through all these hindrances, and all of a sudden, they become very calm and peaceful. Yes, I should do something. So they start poking. Yeah? <laughs> there must be something I need to do. No, you stay for a while and maintain that, you know. Or else, I see people whether they should apply effort to develop, but they're actually applying another kind of effort. So you want to really know which effort you need and when, the quality of the effort you need. Now, how to arouse efforts? Arousing efforts. The Buddha talks about the fourth, the three kinds of efforts. One is initial efforts. Another one is a, 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 what you call a perseverance efforts. Right. Another one is I would uh, I would say non-stop effort. He talks about these pallid words. But I don't know whether it's important for you. The effort to arouse or arousal elements, the element of arousal, the element of persistence, and the element of exertion. Those are the three kinds of efforts that we need uh, to to really uh, practice. Even if, let's say we have sloth and torpor, we need to arouse this kind of effort. And also, this is very important for our practice because sometimes we may need effort to persevere, right? Sometimes we need uh, initial efforts. And if we don't apply this initial effort, then our practice may not go on very well. I always have this, uh, I share this with people. When I was at the airport, I observed the airplanes. Airplanes, they are just the parking lot there. They cannot go out by themselves. They need a little bit of help, that initial push from the parking lot. And then after that, they, get, they start navigating around the, 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 the parking lot in the airport. And then they're put on a runway. And that tractor will go back. So for me, that's like initial effort. And we need it when the mind is so agitated. Or we feel a lot of sloth and topper. We need some mental knot to align ourselves on a runway. Hmm? But when the plane starts moving and the old engines are running, it doesn't need a tractor. <laughs> so the plane just goes on a runway and then uh, it takes off. So these are three phases of the airplane I observed when that they are going to take off. First, a push from the parking lot, then to the runway, and then a takeoff. So this reminds me of this kind, the three kinds of efforts. So when you have a lot of sloth and torpor, you can really 
apply this effort, initial effort, even if it means making a mental note, sleepiness, dullness. Really, it needs some little help, a little help, you know. But once you have overcome sloth and torpor, there's mindfulness, there's effort, and all these mental states are going on, then you're on a runway. Then you don't need a mental note. <laughs> because if you apply a mental note, you're going to obstruct your mental states, which are already running. It's, it's just like when an airplane is on a runway, and say, hey, please, can you help me? They call that tractor. <laughs> can you help me to carry me forward? You don't need to, carry, to be carried forward by a tractor. You don't need to be carried forward by a mental note. And then you take off. So again, this calls for a question. When can we apply mental note? When can we apply mental note? And what's the quality of the mental note? Because sometimes if the mental note is so heavy, then it kind of agitates us. Let's say if you feel calmness, there's a lot of calmness and you're cruising. Calmness, calmness, calmness. You're noting. Eh? Is that helpful? <laughs> yes, you're cruising, you know. You need to put a cruise boat. Maybe a soft, a soft mental note. Oh, calmness. Knowing. Yeah? And maybe when you have a lot of sloth and torpor, you need maybe a more active energetic, mindful knot, mental knot. Because let's say you have a lot of sloth on top, you say, it's okay, it's okay. No, it's not okay. It's okay. <laughs> no, it's not okay. And then you say, sleepiness, sleepiness, as your mental knot, sleepiness, sleepiness. <laughs> Especially when the teacher gives this instruction, oh, be calm and peaceful. <laughs> Put one cushion here, another cushion here, another cushion here. <laughs> I heard about men, uh, teaching on mental noting. Oh, sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor. <laughs> you see? You see how the mental note is not so helpful now? <laughs> that quality of a mental note is not helpful. Maybe you need to a more energetic mental note. And even rapid no mental note. Sloth and torpor, sloth and torpor, a bit uh, close to each other, you know. But with the calmness, you don't need this mental note closer to each other. Calmness, 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 calmness. You'll be less calm. <laughs> You'll be far away from calmness because you'll need a soft mental note and not so close to each other. Just to check in, just to maintain. Just the effort to maintain. Hmm? It's very, very important, actually. Actually, this is like a skill. Meditation, for me, is like a skill, actually. Like riding a bicycle. I think all of us, you, have, you learn how to, do, <laughs> to ride a bicycle. <laughs> do we have somebody who doesn't know how to ride a bicycle? Maybe not. You don't need to raise your hand, but anyway. <laughs> There's something in my life I learned. Many things I've learned, but there's something that I really learned in my life is riding a bicycle in Uganda. When I was growing up, for some reason, the economy was very poor. They, they didn't have children bicycles. It was adult bicycle, big one. 
and yeah, there the distances from one place to another is huge. You have to learn how to ride a bicycle. Always we had to learn using adult bicycle. It was a skill that you had to learn, whether you like it or not. But the way you, you do it, because it's such a big bicycle and you're little, <laughs> you have to go kind of inside there, not just on a saddle, you know. And it's always out of balance. As a kid riding an adult bicycle, it, the bicycle is going to be on the other side and you're on this side. <laughs> it's all off balance. So you have to learn balancing, balancing, and balancing, and balancing, balancing. You keep on falling off and then come again, and fall off and come again. It was amazing for me. And you, you, we do it as you grow, you know. As you grow, you, you keep on growing up, then you, you get promoted, you know, from the down one and you go to the cross and, until you sit on a saddle, you know. It takes years. It takes years. You, so you need the skill. But many times and many times we, we, we fell off because of applying excessive effort. So you need, we needed that balance. And what was very interesting is that when I got to learn how to ride this bicycle, I removed my hand off like other children, uh, the way they were doing it. I fell down. I remember the stone even get stuck here. I fell down one time, but I didn't give up. I started, I mean, I continued, I continued doing the same thing. And then once I really got the balance, so there was those subtle balances. Though I removed the hand off, but I had, I had learned that those subtle balances, very subtle. You're still balancing the bicycle. Even now, if you are to ride a bicycle, there will be some balancing. So that brings us to the question on how do we balance uh, this uh, effort? Because if it's out of balance, you are going to feel it. How do we feel when the effort is out of balance? Restlessness. Restlessness, in many ways, it shows that you have excessive energy over concentration. So you need to step down. You need to step down energy. And the sloth and torpor, uh, it's the opposite. You have less energy over concentration. So we need to step up energy. If we don't know that skill, we are always going to be haunted by these two kinds of hindrances. Because for most part, they are connected to either excessive energy or lack of energy. Many years ago, in 2003, I came to FR to practice with a monk called Saido Ujanaka. I was just a monk for only three, two years as a monk. One year, you can say. Everything was going on very well, but every time, the same time, I had this blanket of sloth and torpor. And I had noted meticulously but nothing helped nothing helped one day two days three days and all these things one time I remembered the t 
teaching of the Buddha, how to overcome sloth and torpor. So I applied some of them, but still I felt my head was so heavy. Uh, a lot of sloth and torpor. One time, I rem because I knew before I became a monk, I used to be a runner, and I loved running. I decided to say, wow, now I'm a monk and I cannot run. I wish I really can run, <laughs> really around the whole property, you know. That will take care of it. I couldn't run <laughs> for obvious reasons. But I'm telling you, I found out that actually I was sitting a lot and I was cutting out my walking. My walking sessions, every time it was time to walk, I would sit. One hour, <laughs> continue on, one hour and a half. Sitting, okay, I don't like walk, you know. I'm telling you, most of the time when we don't balance our energy, like me sitting and walking, balancing that energy, so we are going to have either excess energy or insufficient energy. So we need to take care of this. So when you have sl sloth and torpor, this is what you need to do. Let's say you have the object of breathing in, breathing out, breathing in and out. You want to increase those objects and then give the mind more homework. So you would say, oh, you, could, you would meditate like this. Breathing in, breathing out, sitting, touching. So there are touch points. One, two, three touch points. Three, four, five. Everywhere the body is touching, you try to be aware of those touch points and be aware of the sensation around it. If there are some warm, warmness, if there are coolness, if there are touch sensations, then you can tap into the feelings. How does it feel? Is it pleasant, unpleasant? Then what's the emotion back, background, background as you are watching this? So you are giving the mind more homework to watch something, and you are giving it more mental energy. That will help to boost up energy because you are watching so many things. And when you have restlessness, it's the opposite. You don't want to give many objects to your mind when the mind is restless. You need to step down the objects. Let's say breathing in, breathing out. You might want, uh, you might want to just pay attention to the breathing out or even half the breath or a quarter of it or just... Continue to breathe. <laughs> don't stop breathing. <laughs> but don't <laughs> just open what you call open awareness. And that's where open awareness is very, very important. Hmm? Because you don't require a lot of energy. So really you need to really play with these things and find out when you need uh, to step down energy or step up. But also it requires change of the meditation subject itself. Let's say, for instance, uh, uh, the, we have a lot of restlessness. Maybe you need to change to samatha meditation, whereby you practice metta. May I be well, happy and peaceful. Then you, instead of vipassana, then you switch to what you call samatha meditation, compassion, loving kindness meditation, the Buddha told, said, that when, said that when the mind is so sluggish or restless, you can change your object, let's say, to what we call uh, 
inspiring joy inspiring objects right you feel joy maybe the chanting hmm? the the chanting that you do uh, maybe you do chanting in the evening and you like some line somewhere hmm? you like a line some of pali or english then remember that and then you boost up uh, yeah that is what causes samatha meditation you can change that you can change postures let's say you, if you have a lot of restlessness maybe you can go and lie down not in the meditation hall but in your room <laughs> you, you can go and then lie down because lying down requires less energy hmm? requires a lot less energy and if you have a lot of sloth and torpor you can boost up energy by standing up by even walking i don't know why the buddha never talked about running but i know for sure you cannot run out around like this and then come and start nodding like this or even sleep while running <laughs> you cannot stand up and then sleep if you do please i'll give a hotline i'd like to know <laughs> i'd like to know when you if there's anybody who's who sleeps when they're standing but chickens actually do i watch ch chickens a lot you know I saw chickens when they're standing, they doze like up, like they keep on dozing like this. But I've never seen a human being, you know, when they're standing and then they're sleeping. Raise your hand if that, if that happened to you before. Well, somebody was doing like this, I thought, I'm going to get the first person who slept while walking, I mean, while standing. So these kind of postures are there actually to balance our energy, balance our energy. You can do such things like that. I think more of arousing energy, and I'll end this talk. More of arousing, uh, arousing energy is, and I thought that uh, I've already talked to you about the three kinds of energy, but there's some more information on how to arouse energy is actually mindful reflection on death. Mindful reflection on death. Somebody already given a, given a talk about death. Was who, who gave a talk? Jaya. Jaya gave a talk. Not to scare you basically about death. For us, according to Buddhism, there are three kinds of death. Three kinds of death. The first one is called moment-to-moment -moment death. It's more of psychological death. This is happening all the time because of the five aggregates. The five aggregates form feelings, perceptions, mental formation, including emotions and awareness, is rising and passing away all the time. So when you came to listen my, to this Dhamma talk, you don't have the same cells. But the, as you came with. So new ones have gone. I mean, uh, new ones have come. And then old ones are gone. Not all of them. Hmm? Feelings are not the same. Perception is not the same. Especially when you learn about uh, uh, people who breathe through. <laughs> and also people who didn't apply effort. Did you know about these people? <laughs> now you have a different perception. <laughs> So your old perception is dead, a new one has come. Awareness is the same. So this is called moment-to-moment -moment death, psychological death. 
The second kind of death is the, the one you know already. Eh? When you are born, you are bound to, buy, to die. You know? And then we have the third kind of death in Buddhism. Uh, it's called, uh, it's not death actually. We say the deathless. We call it the deathless. The deathless is when you attain enlightenment, you actually attain what you call the deathless. So now you reflect on that uh, you can reflect on death, and this is what we call one of the four protective meditations. We can try together. Sit comfortably here. Feel comfortably. Feel at ease. Let it go of the past and future. I'd like you to reflect like this. Death is certain. Life is uncertain. Most people think it, it is the other way around. Death is certain. Life is uncertain. I'm of, I'm of the nature to die. I haven't gone beyond death. Death is certain. Life is uncertain. My friend is of the nature to die. They have not gone beyond death. Death is certain. Life is uncertain. The neutral person is of nature to die. They haven't gone beyond death. Then a difficult person, you bring the difficult person. Again you start, the death is certain, life is uncertain. The difficult person is of the nature to die. They haven't gone beyond death. Then finally, death is certain, life is uncertain. All beings are of, are of the nature to die. They haven't gone beyond death. Or you can reflect on life to take the positive side of things. If you don't want to reflect on death, just reflect all. Life is brief. Life is short and sweet, but it's also limited. You just repeat that life is short and sweet, but it's brief and limited. Life is, sh is short and sweet, but it's brief and limited. I should arouse effort and attain awakening and freedom. Okay, that's a meditation you can do about mindfulness of death. It's not to become morbid. Uh, become morbid and uh, you, you see the grim part of life. But it's really face the reality. What this does, it arouses what we call spiritual agents. The Pali word is called samvega. Sam means argumentation, I mean increasing. And vega means speed. Speed, right? So speed which is increased in a spiritual direction. So really, you, want, you don't want to waste time because you know life is brief.
according to the Buddha, it's like drawing a line on water. Our life is like drawing a line on water. You see, as soon as you draw a line on water, what happens? Does it wait for a few minutes? Just keep coming back. But when he gave this talk, those days people lived for 60,000 years. And marriage was around what's called 500 years. You, are st- you can still marry. Can you imagine? Now we usually live around 100 years. <laughs> but back then it was 60,000 years. And still life was brief. So when you look at the f- really the time frame we have, it's not a lot. I came here in USA in 99. I was talking to Joseph yesterday uh, at his home and said, well, time passed very fast. <laughs> I can't believe 18 years has gone, actually, since my three months here. So don't think you have a lot of time. <laughs> it's time to practice, in other words. Put more, uh, push an extra envelope, you know, and arouse effort. There's another reflection I like very much, and it uh, helped me in, in Burma when I was pr- practicing there, is reflect on the support of others. The people, all of us who came here, we are supported by others. Hmm? You didn't hen- end up here by mistake. So uh, people who help you to, who are helping you to, uh, to, to water the plants. I mean, all of us, we are supported here. I remember when I was a monk in Burma, I was going with my arms, bow, and there was this very elder lady who put some food in my arms. Bow. Practice was so difficult in Burma because of the time change and the heat and the, the schedule itself was so tough, you know, to adjust to the schedule it was very difficult. But when I, was, I went there and somebody put food in my arms, bow, my tears nearly rolled down. I went to my seat there to meditate. I said, what can I do to make worthy, to make myself worthy of this food that I received from these people? I had a lot of pain in the beginning, but when I reflected like this, what can I do in this practice of meditation to make myself worthy of receiving this food from this person who was, was sick and maybe was over 75 years? I'm telling you, when I reflected like this, Joy came, and the penny went out of the window. I started going to sit like one hour, one hour, one hour and a half. It was amazing how I felt a lot of joy and energy, knowing that I've been supported by other people. It also happened in San Jose when I was training as a monk. After eating lunch, you know, there's a, a Vietnamese nun who used to give me food every day. And uh, it's amazing. I mean, the people brought food. And then after lunch, the schedule was so tight that after lunch, you have to go to meditate straight away. Maybe rest for 30 minutes. And meditating on a full stomach was very hard. But when I looked at the people who offered the food, I said, yes, I should not be lazy. I should really, really arouse balanced effort. Not strong effort. It has to be balanced effort. It has to be right effort, wise effort. This is very, very important to remember. Reflect on the people who supported you, who are supporting you, actually. It helps to bring some energy, to arouse some effort. Lastly, 
This is a, re a resolution that the Buddha himself made. I read it for I, I'm going to read it for you. Um, I haven't used it. I confess to you, I haven't used this. But anyway, I'll share this with you. <laughs> this is the Buddha's reflection, resolution. Thus, should you train yourself, inclining your mind towards efforts. That's what I call it, inclining your mind to, uh, towards uh, arousing efforts. But this is a quote from the Buddha himself in Anguttara Nikaya. Oh monks, you should train yourself thus unremittingly, shall I, shall I struggle and resolve? Let only my skin, sinews, and bones remain. Let the flesh and blood in my body dry up. Yet the, there shall be no seizing of energy till I have attained whatever can be won by manly strength, effort, and energy. Uh, this is exactly what the Buddha did. Thus should I train myself. It's quite something. It's quite a determination. <laughs> I don't know if that's helpful, but... <laughs> Kind of, it kind of point to arousing too much effort, <laughs> which seemed to be counterproductive. <laughs> I mean, if you are talking about let my flesh and blood in my body dry up, <laughs> it seemed to be opposite. <laughs> but anyway, that's what it is. Uh, what can we do? Okay, let us sit together. <laughs> Let us sit together for a moment or two. These are the last words of the Buddha before he passed away. All conditioned things are impermanent. Strive on with diligence. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. These are the words of the Buddha. Strive on with diligence. All conditioned things are impermanent. Strive on with diligence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.